Welcome to Unexplained Extra, with me, Richard McLean-Smith, where for the weeks in between episodes we look at stories and ideas that for one reason or other didn't make it into the previous show. In our last episode, To More Names, we took a deep dive into the beguiling mystery of the so-called Somerton Man. Some of you may recognise this story as a chapter taken from my book, and as many of you will know, there's been quite a significant development to the story since I wrote it, namely that the man appears to have finally been identified. However, rather than amend the story, I thought it might be better to have someone else a little more qualified explain the latest developments. And so for this week's extra, we're going to do something a little different. Physicist and electronic engineer, Professor Derek Abbott of the University of Adelaide has perhaps done more than anyone to help uncover the Somerton man's identity. In July 2021, he made the stunning announcement that thanks to his tireless work and that of genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick, they had finally cracked the mystery. That kind of leads me to my first question, I suppose, which is, um, when did you first hear about the Somerton man mystery? Is this something that you... Presumably weren't aware of before you went to Australia? Uh, correct. Um, I had never heard about it. And the first time I heard of it was about 95. I just happened to be in a laundromat uh, watching my clothes whiz around and um, picked up one of those magazines that they leave in there. <laughs> and it was an article about the top 10, um, top 10 uh, unsolved mysteries in Australia. And I think this was ranked as number two. Right. But one was uh, the disappearance of Harold Holt and put it down, never did anything with it until 2007 where um, I saw an extended newspaper article uh, which gave a lot of detail and even reprinted the so-called Somerton Man's Code that he had written on the back of a poetry book. And so that's what got my interest up. At the beginning, I thought, okay, um, I have no idea whether this actually is even a code or not in the first place, but uh, let's see if I can set this for a project for my students and do some statistical tests on the letters and see if we can determine if it's a code or not. You say your students, what was your job at the time? Well, I'm a professor at uh, the University of Adelaide and in the electrical engineering department and um, doing um, statistical analysis of data is um, uh, is something we do and um, you know secure uh, crypto security and things is another thing we do so we know about codes so i got my students over the years to uh, a set of many projects to various different students and um we looked at it over and over again and compared it against all known World War II type ciphers. And we were able to eliminate uh, virtually all of them. And um, it's looking like it isn't actually a code. It just looks like the first letters of words in the English language. Right. We can say it's actually English because uh, we've tested it against other first letters of words in other languages and English always comes out tops statistically. So so that's what we think it is. 
And so we think it's just something pedestrian um, that, you know, it's just an aide de memoire. It's just mm-hmm. the first letters of words. It could be anything. It could be, um, you know, his horse uh, betting strategy or uh, trying to solve a puzzle in a newspaper. It could, um, we don't think it's anything uh, anything cons- conspiratorial. <laughs> right. And was it actually written in the book or was it sort of marked onto, sort of scored onto it? It was on the it was on the back cover. Okay. And it was very light. So it's unclear from the old newspaper reports whether it was very lightly penciled or whether it was just a press through from another page. Right. My guess it was just very, very light pencil. And so yes, yeah, so interestingly it's it's actually, you know, not only is it not a code, but probably not relevant to the specific book, therefore, or the phone numbers that were also found in the book. Yes, um, there was some, right next to the circle code were some numbers. Um, One turned out to just be a local bank, and um, another turned out to be um, uh, a lady who had trained as a nurse who lived, in fact, five minutes away from where the man was found dead, five minutes walk away. So joining the dots, the police thought, well, she must know something about this guy. <laughs> yeah. So knocked on her door and um, said, you know, have you seen this book before? And she said, yes. And they go, aha, so you know about this guy found dead on the beach? And she goes... She backpedals and says, oh, no, no, I just meant I've um, seen a Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam before, which is what the book was. Right. And so they dragged her in to um, see uh, a plaster cast they had made off the dead body. So it's a a death mask. Um, I ought to add that um, this had happened about six months after he had died. Yes. So they dragged her in to have a look at the plaster cast and um, apparently she was quite evasive and um, very uncommunicative and behaved very strangely. She just looked at, down at the floor for the whole interview and didn't even look at the plaster cast. Right. And um, so the police thought she knew something but they didn't push her because, um, you know, this wasn't classed as a homicide. If you look at the police file, they always believed it was actually a suicide. That was their um, yeah. their strong belief. And, um, you know, if it was classed as a homicide, you know, they could put the heavies on her, but, <laughs> but that was not the case here. And so they just let her go. Right. So there's me with the working on the code many years later. And um, the so-called code. And, you know, at the beginning of my work, you know, I didn't really know if it was a code or not. I hadn't come to any conclusions. So I was thinking, well, if it is a code, maybe I'm going to need some context. Um, maybe I need to find out this lady's name. Perhaps her name is um, a key to this code or something right. like that. So I set about trying to find out who she was because her name was never published. But they did publish sufficient detail that um, 
the newspapers said, you know, which hospital she had trained in, the, the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, and that she lived very close to where the man was found dead and stuff like that. So using the hospital records and electoral royal records and stuff, I was able to figure it out. It was a, like a huge jigsaw puzzle. Right. And <laughs> But, yes, I, I found out, and her name was Joe Thompson. That's the name she went by. Right. So that comes from had, your work. So I didn't know that. Yes. Um, well, it was known uh, to police, but, he, you know, they had never let that out. Right. And... Uh, so it was confirmed later by police that are alive who did know her name, and they did confirm that. And so uh, she was born Jessie Harkness, but uh, went by the name Joe Thompson later in life. Right. Spelled J-O, uh, which I believe is a bit of a Scottish name, isn't it? And uh, her heritage, if you trace her family tree back, does go back to Scotland, in fact. Right. So she was also known as... Jessica, is that right? And Justin, is that because I've read that too? Well, uh, she, she was born Jessie, uh, Jessie Harkness was her maiden name. Uh, but then she changed her first name. Well, she was known as Joe to all her family and friends. Right. I think it was her husband that, um, her husband to be that nicknamed her that. On her gravestone, it doesn't say Jessie, though, it says uh, Jessica. Because, you know, it's descendants that uh, put stuff on gravestones and uh, the person who's buried is never responsible for it. <laughs> the work you put into that, finding out her name, um, at this point, you kind of becoming more interested in getting to the bottom of the mystery. How does this sort of expand into? Yeah, so I was starting to, uh, after I found the context, uh, you know, found out this lady's name and found more context of the time it's it sort of drew me in i got really interested in all the events of the time i was realizing more and more that this wasn't a code as time went on and so i thought actually the real problem here is to identify the man um not the code the code is just a distraction what would be really interesting is to find out who he is is around 2010 i, I in fact noticed that the plaster bust which is in the police museum here actually has hairs embedded in it because it was molded directly off the dead body. Right. Wow. And you can tell these are real hairs that came off the body and aren't just something off the mortuary floor because they're all standing on end, all in formation, ripped directly off the body. So I thought, aha, this is a potential source of DNA. So I got some permission in 2011 to grab some hairs out of the bust, uh, which we did. And um, unfortunately, the technology of the time uh, wasn't good enough to extract DNA from a hair, let alone hair that old. So anyway, we bit the bullet. And in 2015, our DNA lab at Adelaide University had a go. We selected the three best hair roots that we had and tried to uh, get some DNA out of them. Uh, it did test positive for DNA. There was actually DNA there, so that was encouraging. But we got absolutely n virtually nothing out of it. We got no sequence. All we, all we were able to get was what's called his maternal haplogroup. And so we knew his mother's group was H, and that's all we knew. 
so it was a little bit disappointing, but also exciting that um, at least there was viable DNA in there. And so then in 2018, we had another crack at the lab at the university, and bingo, we got the whole mitochondrial genome. That's all the DNA from the mother's side. Unfortunately, that's not the sort of DNA you need to identify somebody. Um, to identify somebody like this, where you don't have any comparison to compare the person with, what you need to do is upload it on genealogical DNA websites and, and find nearest cousins, you know, like Ancestry.com and stuff like that. Now, those, those websites, uh, people may or may not know this, the DNA they use is quite different to what police do. Police use quite long strands of DNA, long sequences, roughly around 23 markers, depending on what, what jurisdiction you're in. Usually it's around 20 to 23. These DNA websites don't do that. They use much shorter DNA markers, and they use anywhere between half a million to two million of them. It's a completely different ballgame. It's the part of the DNA that's inherited from both the mother and the father. So the mitochondrial genome, which we extracted, was no good. We needed the part of the DNA that's the mi mixture of both parents. And this, these are called the autosomes. We only got 16,000 of those. And... Um, which was a which was a huge breakthrough, but not enough. It's way below uh, half a million, which is what's ne really needed. So I tried my best uh, at seeing if I could make do with the sixteen thousand, and it just didn't work. It was a big flop. <laughs> now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in life, but when you learn how to find your own solutions. There's no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional online therapy, and financial aid is available. Just fill out a brief survey and get matched with a therapist today. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash unexplained10 today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash unexplained10. Around the um, uh, beginning of this year, in fact, um, I had another go. This time I used a lab in the in the USA, uh, which had some latest cutting-edge technology for extracting DNA from hair. And so I took my best hair root, uh, sent it off to them, that I'd uh, nervously saved up since 2011, always. So it's wow. over, over 10 years. Yeah. And guess what? It was a big flop it didn't give us a sequence. And so it was, I was mortified. This is my best hair route that I'd saved up. <laughs> so then went to plan B and sent them five centimeters of hair shaft with no root. And guess what? We got two million markers. Wow. 
Yeah, so what we're, what we're able to do is with those 2 million markers, we're able to upload it and find his nearest cousins that are alive today. And his top hit um, was a chap in uh, Victoria, Australia, um, which is the state next door to me. Um, the other closest matches were also in Victoria. So straight off, this was not looking like a Russian spy after all or an right. American or whatever. Uh, another part of the story is uh, another twist to the whole story, um, which we haven't gone into yet, is that Joe Thompson um, had a son um, born out of wedlock who mysteriously had features that looked rather like the Somerton Man. Um, and it, one of the theories was perhaps he's the son of the Somerton Man. So... So what I was able to do was compare um, the DNA of the Somerton man to um, his daughter that's alive, uh, the daughter of uh, Joe Thompson's son, that is, who, who also I happen to be married to, so that's another little twist. I don't know if you've explained that to the audience yet. No, I haven't at all. So I, if you don't mind, are we able to go into that a little bit? Because, I mean, that is extraordinary. Uh, and I'm yes. my main question was, at what point did, did you meet your wife in this sort of journey of yours, so to speak? I met my wife around 2010. Um, it was basically because Joe Thompson had passed away two years before I found out who she was. And then I thought, well, I should interview her son, Robin. But he had passed away like literally two months before I figured out how to contact him. So then I thought, well, does he have any descendants? So I interviewed a daughter of his, Rachel, and we hit it off and decided to get married the next day. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's incredible. And then we really did get married about three months later. So um, wow. being married to her, obviously I had her DNA on tap. And um, so immediately, that's the first thing I did when we got the Summerton Man's 2 million markers, is compare it against wife. And guess what? Absolute zero match. Not a single scaring in there. <laughs> I'd like to ask as well, was there not a story, I, I thought I've read it at some point, that Joe Thompson had said something at some point, much later in her life, in relation to the, the man's identity? Was that a fabrication in the paper or had she alluded to knowing him at some point? People always said they thought she knew something, but she never admitted it. I see. Um, so what you've probably been reading is probably people saying that I bet she knew something. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yes, so we ruled out my, my wife being related and hence her father. So that was interesting. So, um, yeah, so we eliminated that possibility and then we started looking at these nearest cousins that were in Victoria. So the fact they were from Victoria, Australia, meant straight away that, you know, these are the top matches. So, you know, this guy's obviously not some Russian spy or American or whatever. It kind of eliminated all the fanciful theory straight away and just some ordinary bloke uh, from the state next door. <laughs> So from the top match, what we're able to do is, um, and this is myself and Colleen Fitzpatrick from America, who's an expert genealogist. Um, we worked on this together and built out the family tree. And because we were working in the dark and, you know, we didn't know which, 
which direction the tree would go in and stuff like that, where, where to look in the tree. We obviously just went ballistic and just built out the tree to like a, it right. was like a had 4,000 people on it at, in the end. Wow. And then um, it seemed this chap in Victoria connected to a family uh, quite quickly um, called uh, Keen, K-E-A-N-E. Right. And this is quite significant because, um, the sum, as we all know, the Somerton man had the name Keen written on some uh, items of his clothing, uh, written in India ink. Um, and he even had a laundry bag with the name Keen stenciled on it. Right. And laundry bags with stenciled names uh, is a very sort of World War II army type thing. Um, so what's he doing with these items with the name Keen on them? So Colleen immediately said, oh, I bet he's a Keen because, uh, you know, he's connecting to this Keen family. And so she was, pardon the pun, very keen on this hypothesis. <laughs> And we were looking at these Keens, and um, we couldn't find any of them missing. They were all fine. They all were well accounted for and um, had all had dates of death way after 1948. I was thinking, hmm, uh, back to the drawing board. And I, I was saying I was saying to Colleen, you know, I think this whole Keen thing is a distraction. It's a coincidence. You know, it's a common name. Okay, so there's somebody on this family tree of 4,000 with the name Keen, and he happens to have that name on his tie, you know, it, it could just be a coincidence. And so I, I say to her, look, I think we'd better move on. <laughs> and so what we do is we then find, um, we then look at other people on the tree that don't have dates of death. Right. And that can happen for all kinds of reasons, you know, uh, births, deaths, and marriage offices, you know, particularly in the world from World War II times, you know, can have information lost, you know, or there could be some flood or something. Yep. Um, but it's a good place to start. So um, we did find um, a couple of people close to this Keen family that uh, looked like they didn't have a date of birth. One of them we were able to find a photo for, and Colleen was saying, hmm, well, this photo does look a bit like the Somerton man. And um, I was saying, no, nah, it doesn't doesn't look like him to me, you know. But that's the trouble with old fuzzy photos. You can make them look like anything you want, really. Right. And um, so we had a bit of a disagreement over that. And, and then another chap, a person of interest, was a guy who was born by the name Carl Webb in 1905, but went by the name Charles Webb. Right. Uh, later in life you know no no date of death couldn't find a photo on him um but we thought well look, we, we ought to check this one as well so what 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 i did was um because the tree had been built out through the Keene family which was in fact by marriage because his sister frida had married a guy called Keene. what we thought we should do is well go away from that side of the family tree and look at the Somerton man's mother and tunnel her tree down and find somebody on that side of the family that right. is alive today and test their DNA. And so we did. And guess what? It didn't match. It was oh. a big flop. <laughs> 
So there's another twist. And I thought, oh, my God, what's gone wrong here? And here's the twist. The twist is that the Somerton man's mother, or Charles Webb's mother, I should say, is um, didn't her maiden name was Grace, but we found out that her supposed father wasn't Mr. Grace. It was another chap. Wow. It was Mr. Morris. And I don't think she ever knew herself who her real dad was. Wow. How did you find that out? Um, that was interesting. There, there were some genealogists already on Ancestry.com who looked like they had figured this out. And so by poking around on family trees there, we, had, we saw that. And the interesting thing about this was Colleen went straight for this. She said, yep, this is right. This is he's a Morris. And I'm actually skeptical. So it's me going, mm, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure there's enough evidence for this. Because, <laughs> um, you know, it looks like there's some suppositions here uh, and things like that. So what we did is we go, okay, well, let's say it is Morris then. So we, we tunneled down um, the uh, mother's side family tree, assuming the correct father now, and get, and get this part of the family tree correct find um an alive person who was prepared to um a live descendant who's prepared to be tested so i rang him up and he was he was very helpful and uh he agreed and uh i think a couple of months later his dna came through and it was a match bingo it's amazing <laughs> so get this not only did uh, we get this match and so not only did it prove straight away that hey uh Charles Webb is the Somerton man because we've got a, like a triangulation now from two distant, different parts of the family yeah. tree meeting the point. So it's a triangulation. But it also proves that his mother was really a Morris all in one hit. Yeah. Then what we did is usually um, with this sort of work, one doesn't just do one confirmation one looks for many. So what we're able to then do is look to see who else is on the database that's close to our new chat that we had just found and see if they also matched as Summerton Man. And we found another one. So we found another triangulation point. And then what I was able to do is contact close descendants of uh, Charles Webb. So I found... Um, a granddaughter of one of his sisters, and I also found um, wow. uh, a great-grandson and great-granddaughter of his eldest brother, and so get, got all these people tested. And every time it was a fantastic match, and the um, amount of DNA overlap were just kept increasing and increasing as we got, you know, these closer family relatives it's just now completely beyond all reasonable doubt that, you know, Charles Webb is the Summerton man. Yeah, that's, it's incredible. And, and I mean, how do these people, how did they feel? I mean, firstly being approached, but secondly, sort of finding themselves now part of this story in a way, is it something, because I guess the whole thing about the story of the Summerton man is there's the, there's a sort of ethical question about whether this is maybe he wanted to die anonymously you know maybe maybe there's an element of 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 that wanting to sort of retreat from the world and we are now interested in trying to sort of 
stir that back up in a way, maybe against the man's wishes. But did actually people find it? Were they thankful? Was it a sort of reassuring yeah, thing? Well, it, 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 they were thankful. Um, they were very pleased to help, and uh, without exception, it just so happens that um, you know all the people I contacted were actually genuinely interested in their own family tree. Yeah, some of them had even drawn out their family tree and did wonder what happened to Uncle Charlie. <laughs> so, yes, you know, and. There was no oral history that had been passed down from their family to say what had happened to him. Yeah. Uh, so they were quite pleased to have it all worked out. Could you tell us what we what we do know about Charles Webb or what you what you know or what, what has been found out about him? So what we've been able to find out now is that um, Charles Webb was born in 1905. His dad was a German immigrant from Hamburg and his mum was a local, I believe, of Scottish ancestry originally. Right. So then you have another Scotland connection there. And uh, his dad was basically a baker. They grew up in various towns in Victoria, uh, uh, close to Melbourne, and his dad worked in various different bakeries. He seemed to change jobs quite a lot, but finally settled in 1928 and bought his own bakery in a little town called Springvale, which is now part of Melbourne. Uh, Not not so little anymore, but it was a little tiny place back then. And uh, so they had the bakery in Springvale. And so uh, Charles and his brother Roy worked at the bakery. Uh, Also, I believe his older brother Russell, or Richard Russell, sorry, and it seems by 1928, the uh, sisters had all left home and got married. Richard had also actually left home, but it seemed he came into work at the bakery. So, But the two brothers were still at home and lived at the bakery with their parents and were working there. And it seems also around 1928 that he had trained as an electrical fitter, an instrument maker but also appears that he was also working at the bakery all at the same time. So mm. one, one, and we haven't been able to find his place of work. So I'm just wondering whether he was, you know, working at the bakery, but also kind of doing it, its electrical work on a contract basis, something like this. This is what I'm thinking, because it seems like he was doing two jobs at once, as far as I can see. Yeah. So this could possibly explain why there are no work colleagues uh, course yeah uh, counting him as missing the explanation why no family members came forward uh, to uh, say look this chap's missing is if you look at the family it seems it was one big happy family around 1928 but around 29 richard his eldest brother his wife dies young mm-hmm. Um, and leaves him small children, which he then has to farm out to an orphanage. Right. And then uh, his brother Roy dies in 1943 in World War II. Mm -hmm. His nephew, John Keane, dies in 1943, also in World War II. His dad dies in 1939 just after selling the bakery. Right. And then his mum dies in 1947, sorry, 1946 rather. Um, and 
basically all these events happen over this short space of time and basically the family becomes all fragmented. Yep. You know, yep. and and it's the war as well, yep. just after World War II. And so they're all fragmented. They've had all these deaths and they're probably not all speaking to each other anymore. You know, I'm sure people are familiar with the idea of um, it happens in all families, you know, there are deaths and turns of events and families don't, just don't speak to each other anymore after a while. It happens. And then in 1947, uh, Charles and his wife separate. So obviously she's not speaking to him anymore either. And mm-hmm. she files for divorce on grounds of desertion. She doesn't know where, where, where his whereabouts is. And 47 is the last time we see him on any documentation. He drops off any electoral roll records or anything like that. He just right. totally disappears off the record. So it's very interesting. So, and why did he go to Adelaide of all places? That's a bit mysterious. He's living, a resident of Victoria. Why did he travel by train to Adelaide and the and you know, go lie down on the beach and die. Um, yeah, very strange. Uh, and why the book in the car? Yeah, that's another thing. Um, so there's still still many strange mysteries that we'll probably never know. And the mystery, yeah. I think, the mystery will still live on. And I think the um, internet conspiracy theorists will still believe he's some sort of spy. <laughs> Uh, you know, these things will never go away, I'm sure. We do have a possible hypothesis why he went to Adelaide of all places. And a strange strange twist is in his wife's divorce papers, uh, divorce affidavit, she lists her address as being in South Australia. Right. Which is the state where Adelaide is. Um so that's very interesting. But we don't know the date that she actually arrived here. But if we just pretend that perhaps she was here already, perhaps it was her that uh, he had come to see. Yeah. So anyway, that's a mystery, something for the internet sleuths to ponder on. What's next for you in regards to the case? Are you going to continue? Uh, is there more to find out that you're interested to know? And you mentioned also going do some work on the Voynich manuscript. Is that? Something also you're doing? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're doing work on the Voynich manuscript. Um, I probably should be spending more time on that and less time on this now because I think, I think I've think i squeezed out about as much as anyone can find on this case. I, I don't think we're going to find any other big nuggets um, uh, on the Somerton Man. Um, so my, maybe it's time to let this go and look at the Voynich so yeah, we're working on that fast and furiously, and and you know, I might, might we might have some interesting results on that by next year to announce. Oh <laughs> uh, wow! Look forward to hearing that. Thank you very much. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now do so via Patreon to receive access to ad-free episodes. Just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. 
please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.